Hello, and welcome to Canada Reads American Style. I'm Shauna. And I'm Rebecca. And we actually have kind of a unique situation tonight that we're really excited to present. About a month ago, a new author reached out to us and asked if we would be interested in reading her book. And I said, we would love to, because I kind of saw what the book was about. And I know that it had been in the Toronto Star and in the Quillen Choir. And I thought, yeah, I would love to read it. But as many of you know, sometimes it's hard for us to get Canadian titles, especially new titles. So I did ask if it was possible that we could get a copy. And her publisher, Now or Never Publishing, sent us a copy. And I read it. Full transparency, Shauna did not read it because the content is not quite Shauna's thing. Because as you know, Shauna likes happy stories with romance and everything. And while this is a romance, it is real life. So maybe not quite the kind of book that Shauna normally reads. Shauna, I'm kind of outing you here. Sorry about that. But anyway, so who we have with us this evening is Maria Chiosh. And she is the author of Cam and Bo. So, Maria, we'd like to welcome you to our podcast. Oh, thanks so much, uh, Rebecca and Shauna. I'm really, really happy to be chatting with you guys. And because you're a new author, we're actually going to start really sort of at ground level. And as many of you may know, when I read an author, I usually do a lot of research on them because I kind of like to know their background and who they are so I can have a little context of the story. But because Maria has an academic life, but not a novelist life yet fully fleshed out we're going to really take it down to the bare bones and kind of say tell us a little bit about your background maybe where you were born raised your academic achievements etc awesome yeah so i'm a native torontonian i was born and raised there and i'm also a first generation canadian so my parents were actually polish immigrants and english was not my first language growing up but I grew up loving books, and now English is the language that feels much more natural to me, ironically, uh, than Polish. And uh, with that love of books, I've always been uh, decent at school, and I've always loved fiction. So I knew I wanted to, quote unquote, be a writer, which is a pretty hopeless desire, economically speaking. So I started early on thinking about how I could allow myself to pursue that career in a way that allowed me to write books while still having some kind of financially stable career. So what I did is basically, I finished my BA at the University of Toronto, and it was uh, just when the Great Recession was beginning. So there weren't a lot of job opportunities. And I decided, well, I might as well pursue my MA, which was a funded degree. And then following that degree, I actually moved abroad with my husband to London, where we were pursuing, again, looking for jobs, because there just were not a lot of opportunities. And I worked there for a while as a uh, peer controller on the River Thames, where I basically, you know, looked at when boats came in and out and helped passengers get on and off. And just not a very literary type situation, but really good for thinking and writing. And while I was in London, I got an offer from Stanford University, where I went uh, immediately after we'd been in the UK. And since then, I've uh, completed my degree and moved back to, to Canada, and I've found the academic thing has been really productive for me for finding time to to write and think, uh, even in terms of fiction. Okay, I have to admit, I'm really blown away. First of all, I'm so jealous that you were born and raised in Toronto because it's my favorite city on the planet and I love it so much. And so I'm jealous, number one, of that. Number two, you got to live abroad in London. 
jealous of that. So, wow. And the, this peer controller position, that is, that is so unique. I mean, how many people do you know that have done that? That's really incredible. So, wow. Was, I love that. It was a crazy opportunity to get to see London firsthand. Yeah, that is so, that is really, really unique. So when did you write Cam and Bo? I kind of want to know how long did it take and how in the world did you find the time? Because you, with your academic background, I looked at your CV and I don't even know how in the world you found time to write this book. <laughs> yeah, I get, I get this question a lot. And it's, uh, the thing is novels, unlike a short fiction, which is how most people get their start are incredibly time consuming. So what happened was I wrote Cam and Bo between 2010 and 2013. So that took me a total of three years with some breaks in between. And that was while I was very young and dead broke and uh, really enjoying what I see in hindsight was a very grungy lifestyle in my hometown, Toronto. And at the time, I had written short stories and published them, but this was the first truly long thing I embarked upon writing. And uh, it's not like I sat down and said, you know, I want to write about themes A, B, and C. It was more like the characters came to me loud and fully formed and kind of dropped in and, you know, wanted to wanted to have their story told. So the goal for me writing this book was I wanted to do right by them and realizing their world. And it's a book I wrote because it's a story I've always wanted to read, but not one I've ever had the opportunity to come across in another book. So it was kind of a dream situation for me like that. And uh, as I mentioned before, I wrote it basically in breaks between writing an MA thesis, which felt very real and exciting for me in contrast to the sorts of, you know, really intense academic formal constraints that you have when you have to write, you know, a document that will pass as a thesis to help you get a degree. So I think a lot of people say that you need a dedicated time and space to really write in any serious way. But I found that actually for me, it's the dialogue between my real life and my other commitments and the time that I spend writing that I carve out of that life that's been productive. And it just, there's something intense and compelling about thinking about life in relation to fiction and having that uh, connection to daily life really transforms and fuels, or at least has for me, uh, the stuff I've been writing. Now, it was interesting because you said it was a story, you wrote the story that you wanted to read yourself. What without getting too far, because I do have a lot of questions about it, but what was it about the story that needed to be told that you you weren't reading yourself somewhere else? Well, I so I'm very interested in, in drug cultures and I'm really interested in, in queer love stories and I hadn't seen those things combined. I've always been interested in this dynamic of what happens in friendships and how friendships like do or don't cross lines into love relationships. And I think a lot of those stories are told in a very specific genre which you know is usually like the romance genre that you're thinking of with like a mass market kind of paperback and i just have never seen these elements combined in this way and it was something that i just felt was you know the story that only i could tell with my specific background yeah oh my gosh i can't wait to get further into this interview because yeah i i you just nailed exactly how i feel about the story okay so i do want to give a shout out to the publisher because i want to know how in the world did you get a publisher for a, as a first time novelist? How difficult was it to find a publisher? Oh my gosh, it was so hard. <laughs> there's there's a very specific route into publishing, especially for literary fiction, and it's often through finding a community through doing like an MFA degree, uh, which is not the path I pursued. So 
it was very difficult for me to build these connections. And I started seriously looking for a publisher in 2014. So about a year after I actually completed the book. And I did not get an offer until 2019. Though I did get many uh, rejections that were very nice and said a lot of nice things about the book. <laughs> so that was encouraging, but uh, it was definitely a slog. It was to the point where I was initially looking for agents and I had one who actually read not just this book, but its sequel back to back before turning them down saying she couldn't, she didn't think she could find a market for the book. Oh. So yeah, I think part of that is that, you know, in Canada, there's a strange publishing climate, which is on the one hand, we have these large multinational conglomerate type publishers like Penguin Random House that are not going to take a risk on this kind of more out there edgy book. And at the same time, we have these smaller independent government funded presses that want work that's pretty clearly literary. Uh, and I think a problem for this book was that it didn't really fit cleanly into either category. So I think that was the challenge in finding a home for it. Yeah. And then it was funny when I posted the cover, when I started to read the book, I posted the cover to our Instagram and uh, it was interesting because right away people said, oh, I love the cover art. So where did the cover art come from? Was that a connection that you had or that they, the publisher located? Oh, that's amazing. I'm glad they had that reaction. What I did was I approached Angie Fay, who's, who's a local Toronto tattoo artist, and I basically asked her because we had done work together on, on tattoos for myself. And I asked her if she would be interested in a commission to kind of capture this uh, grungy local Toronto feel of the book. And uh, I was thrilled when she said yes. So what happened was I basically just sent her a list of objects that are prominently featured in the book or have some thematic connection to stuff that happens in the book uh, plot wise. And she worked with that. And that was what she came up with. It's a beautiful, compelling cover. It really is. And it and like you say, it, it tells the story in image, which I love. So now, can you give us a summary of your novel? The book is about the title characters. So Cam, who is a shy graduate student studying critical theory, and Bo, who's his uh, markedly non-academic roommate and best friend. They are, as a recent review put it, tender-hearted stoners. And indeed, the book has a lot of casual drug use. Cam's major dilemma is that he's never going to get up the nerve to tell Bo that he's in love with him, uh, which is a situation that's exacerbated by the fact that they live together and have a shared life and intense friendship that he's reluctant to damage or jeopardize by confessing his feelings, which is a situation that gets more complicated when Bo becomes seriously ill and dependent on Cam in a way he hasn't been before. So Cam is always like reading his relationship with Bo through the theory he studies, and it kind of creates this confusion for him about what texts say reality should be like and how he actually experiences that reality. So the book is really about how hidden knowledge can shape what happens between people, how we decide to read or not read things, and what happens when we allow ourselves to view our reality a little more strangely and how that can change us when we allow ourselves to see it like that. You know, and I have to tell you, when I first started to read the book, and I, and I think I actually did put this in our Instagram post, the first paragraph just grabbed me. And I said, you know how sometimes you encounter a book where that just the very beginning makes you think, this is really quality and I'm going to love this. And I have to say, and Shauna knows because I talked to her a lot about the book, but it was driving me crazy. I was just, I was mad at times. And then I just couldn't, I mean, I had a lot of emotional connection to the story and the way that I felt because in some ways, and we can talk about this as we go, but I was looking, because I'm older, you may not know this, I'm 61, and as I was reading it, I thought, I think this is how it is when you're younger in some ways, because 
you've got your whole life ahead of you and romance seems so much bigger. And I think when you get to my age, you start to say, you know, I'm running out of time here. So I think I'm going to tell someone I love them because I'm running out of time. And when you're young, everything just seems bigger than it is, or maybe it really is that big. You know what I mean? But it was, it was an incredible read from seriously from the first paragraph. Like I knew it was quality from the from the get-go. It was amazing. That's super kind of you to say thank you. I would agree. I think like that energy of youth is really key to the book in a way I didn't realize at the time, but reading it now that I'm older, I'm now I'm now 31, but I wrote this book when I was 22, 23. So seeing seeing this and revisiting it like yes, that that uh, youthful direness of everything is so key to the story. Yeah, exactly. So now, because I loved all four the main characters, and Cliff's kind of a sort of a slight character, but he plays a really critically important role at the beginning and at the end, in my view. And so, could you just kind of describe the strengths and or weaknesses of Cliff, Stacy, Cam, and Bo? And I kind of listed them that way on purpose. <laughs> Interesting. Okay. Yeah, for sure. So in my mind, all of these characters have these more archetypal qualities or, or symbolize certain tendencies. And uh, for Cliff, it's that he's their, he's Cam and Bo's drug dealer, but he's also their friend. And for me, he was like this uh, trickster figure, like this orchestrator who has this magisterial quality about him and always wants to set things up a certain way. Uh, so for him, it's that drugs, which he sells, set things in motion. They sort of create situations where social norms can be turned upside down, and he gets a lot of pleasure out of that, I think. But he also has this desire to see things uh, be right or work out for the better, which is really paradoxical for someone who makes their living in such an illegal way. I think a strength of him is he's, he's a good friend and has a real sense of foresight and concern, but at the same time, he can get uh, single-minded and not realize when he's hurting rather than helping. Sometimes just willing something to be a certain way won't necessarily make it so. And I think he struggles to appreciate the limitations that one's uh, willpower can have. Beautiful. Stacy is a grad student in English, and she's actually a transplanted American from Connecticut, which uh, might be interesting for you guys. And her thing is she's really uh, quick-witted, sharp, intimidating, self-sure, uh, very confident in herself. She's also a very critical person. She's aware of gender roles and stereotypes, and she's really determined not to fall into them even though she often does. And she's really enamored with directness. She has this idea that everybody should say exactly what they think and feel and that the world would be simpler that way. Uh, however, in being so forward, I think she's not always aware of how she comes off and can get really single-minded about a situation or misinterpret it, which are a lot of qualities that Cam has. So not to spoil it, but those two characters get mirrored in a way. Okay, and then Cam. He's a, he's a lifelong academic. He's been in school his whole life, and he enjoys that kind of environment. He's like this sincere man of feeling, like a capital R romantic. He's shy. I think, in my mind anyway, he's a, he's a real sweetheart. He's obsessed with thinking through things, not acting on things. So he's always thinking about acting on his feelings, but never quite doing it. So I would say um, Cam is a classic overthinker. He's an example of what happens when you read too much into everything and you take theoretical concerns too literally. Oh, okay. Yeah, I can see that. Yeah. And then, of course, Bo. Bo, as we mentioned, is, is Cam's childhood best friend, with a really intense interest in film photography. And his background is he's been in the foster system, so he has pretty clear issues around uh, 
fearing abandonment, not wanting to get attached to anyone. He's fiercely independent and not good at expressing his needs or relying on others. So he works extra hard not to recognize the nature of attachments that he's already in or right in front of him, because that would be a way of uh, being vulnerable, which is what he wants to avoid. So I think if he suffers from anything, it's this uh, willful self-ignorance. He doesn't want to allow himself to feel things too keenly. But at the same time, he has this deep respect for family and a desire for secure relationships, which conflict with that risk-averse nature. So if I had to sum up Bo, I would say he's like a gravel-coated popsicle. He's rough on the surface, oh, but he's sweet deep down. Oh, I love that, because that's actually really, I love that. That's actually really beautiful. And I have to say, I didn't think of Cliff kind of as a trickster position, you know, kind of a character. But then as you're talking about him and I'm thinking about what he does, like I say, kind of at the, at the sort of at the very beginning and then at the end, I totally see that as uh, him in that role. So thank you. I, thanks for sharing that because I love that. It, I so agree. The average reader will not, I think, <laughs> will not have an extensive background in the works of Foucault or Derrida, et cetera, uh, philosophers. Are you afraid we are missing the deeper meaning in the novel? Because that was the one thing when I was reading it, I kind of, I always sometimes think when I read uh, really great literature that I think I'm probably missing the deeper meaning because I'm not an intellectual necessarily, well, I'm not, but I always think, am I missing something? So do you, do you think that we could be missing something or do you think that part that we, I guess that we're going to get that part of the story? Yeah. I for sure. I think that's a, that's an amazing question because, you know, it's something I thought about as I was writing this. I am obviously very mired in academia, so that's like the part of me that ended up in, in this book pretty intensely. But uh, to answer the question of whether the reader would be missing the deeper meaning if they were not uh, versed in these texts, I would say yes and no, because ultimately, at least in my view, all books work on multiple levels. So it would be possible to read everything from Proust to, say, Michael Crichton, on just like a narrative level, thinking about the plot, characters, what happens, and then on that uh, really intense, like critical thematic level. And I think the person who can read the book on both levels is ultimately going to get the most out of it, but that doesn't mean that the person who is not gonna read it that way is gonna have a somehow inferior reading experience or that flashes of that thematic stuff won't come through in other ways, even if they're not uh, being directly grappled with on, on like a theoretical level. And I think any reader could uh, look at some of the excerpts of theory that Cam reads or thinks about and make an educated guess as to how they relate to what's going on in the book generally, even if they don't know what text that came from or what exactly it was in context. I don't think you need a degree in critical theory like Cam has in order to get that the book is about some basic things like speaking versus staying silent or how verbalizing something you desire might put you at risk. And those themes, I think, are there regardless, and any reader would get them. Uh, they would just maybe not verbalize them to themselves in the same way that like the theory person would. I agree, because one of the things I did while I was reading it, and I do this almost with everything I read, especially because now, you know, in the old days, you would just read a book. Now you have access to, you know, research. So I, on my phone, I was typing in like a lot of different things. I was reading about these different philosophers and kind of their what they're what they stood for historically, et cetera. So I kind of just in the simple terms, 
looked a, looked it up a little bit and then I kind of felt like I got a little bit more out of it doing that. But I agree with you. I mean, I, I totally got the gist of the story, which is beautiful and frustrating and whatever. But so that's good to know that like I didn't probably miss any major thing necessarily that because I don't ha I'm not schooled in that area, I guess. Yeah, no, I think it's more like an Easter egg, you know, like, I think that's like a bonus for the for the theory person who's really gonna, you know, get off on that. <laughs> but it's by no means crucial to fully enjoying the book. Yeah, I agree. Because I love the book. Yeah. I, in fact, I, I don't think I've actually said that. I loved it. But like I said, some of it, uh, and I'll, we'll get to that in a minute here. But some of it, I just was like, Oh, my gosh, please. Anyway. Okay, so my next question is, and this is something I kind of thought about a lot because it's it was unique in that I don't think I've ever read a book that made me ask this question. So that's why I really kind of love the book. But it seems that Cam and Bo are each other's first like gay relationship, and yet they don't seem to have internal thoughts about it. And I, I wondered, is it because they're childhood soulmates, they're sexually fluid? Uh, or do labels not matter to them? Yeah, that's a great question and, and something I've thought about a lot coming out of um, gender studies, which is what my, my master's degree was in. I think uh, we live in a world where identity categories are expected to stand in for basic information about us, telling other people all they need to know. And I'm often frustrated by the way that things like gender norms really prevent us from seeing people as fully human in their individuality. So, you know, when we meet someone, we're always already making assumptions about them based on not just their gender, which is the prominent thing for me, but also based on their sexual identity over determining how they can be and who or what they can desire. So for, for me, these labels like gay, straight or bi, I think can do, can do the same in terms of being a form of policing about who can be with who. So like, oh, I thought you were gay. Why are you attracted to that man? If you're thinking about like a gay woman and the choice of partner identity label don't always neatly match is one way of putting that. Another way of thinking about it is that I'm of the mind that most people are probably more sexually fluid than they think, even if they don't know it. So there are probably people who on the Kinsey scale identify as just heterosexual or, or are only interested in same-sex relationships. But I think most people's sexuality is formed on like a situational or case-by-case -case basis and depends on a number of complex factors. Um, and that a lot of people might be surprised to feel certain ways at certain times, which is sort of like what's what's going on in the story. And I wanted to write a love story where the characters related to one another as people first and foremost, rather than through these label-based expectations that would define their, their sexuality or their relationship in advance. And I think friendships in particular are these deep, meaningful relationships we have with people where we often take up roles based on our personality dynamics rather than a pattern that would be established by like a sexual identity label. So for that reason, I would call this a queer love story rather than a gay love story, because on the one hand, I definitely don't claim to speak for the gay community and certainly not like the gay male community. And uh, I don't think either character would necessarily identify that way in the sense that, you know, they both do get some pleasure out of relationships with women as well. And so it's not like a stereotypical coming out narrative for that reason, because it's not sexuality itself they need to come to terms with it's more their specific situation they need to come to terms with if that makes sense beautiful yeah i agree and it's funny because i think that's one of the things i liked about the book was that it was it wasn't even a question about who they love right and then there's you know stacy's kind of in the middle of it and 
you kind of mentioned that they seem to have had relationships with women in the past. It was just sort of like they're living their lives and none of that matters. Like none of this stuff, like you say, the labels, et cetera, don't matter. And I have to tell you what it kind of reminded me of. I know this seems like a silly reference, but, you know, I just actually a few months ago watched the entire series of Schitt's Creek. And one of the things I loved about it most was that David's relationship with his husband, ultimately, nobody in that small town gave a rat's ass that these two men were in love and getting married and had a business together, et cetera. They were just two people living their lives. And it was so everything was so normalized. And that's not quite yet how our society is. I mean, I think we're moving in that direction, but I love Schitt's Creek for that. And I love this book for that because it was just, like you said, it was two men who knew each other for so long. They both were clearly in love with each other. That's what was frustrating me, but they, neither one of them would like jump in and do, do something about it. And I, and again, I'm older and I'm just like, for God's sakes, just get to it, you know? And I kept just going crazy about it, which I love. I mean, it was making me crazy, but I love that part of it. Thank you for that. Because again, I don't think I've ever read a story where the labels didn't matter. Like they didn't exist. It's not even that they didn't matter. They just didn't exist. It was just a story about people who love each other. And I love that. I mean, I would, I would love if we lived, if we lived in that kind of world, you know, where like we could just have whatever and the label not matter. So maybe this is like, for me, a small, a small step toward imagining that kind of space. And I grew up, I mean, obviously for me, labels still play a big part in how I see people. And so I don't know that it'll happen in my lifetime, but I look forward to the point where maybe it won't matter so much, right? I, I hope that we get there someday, honestly, because one of the things I, I said to Shauna, you know, I read about there are something like 62 genders or something. And then I thought, you know, why do we have to have so many labels now? We were trying to get away from labels and now we're going to add more labels. And I'm not, you know, I apologize if anybody disagrees with my point of view on that, but I just feel like less labels are probably helpful than maybe more labels. I don't know because it's, yeah, it's a bit confusing. I'm not going to lie. And again, I'm older. I grew up a certain way, but I feel like I'm evolving. It's just, you know, I don't know. It's a little bit difficult sometimes. This was also really interesting to me because I, this is not my experience, but I was fascinated because of the drug use in the story. And I kept thinking to myself, I can't believe these people are still standing. Like how how many drugs do you take before you don't survive it? I, I mean, it's just not my experience. So my question is, it does, the drugs do play a large role in the novel. And I wanted to know, how does your, because I know you have that in your academic background, but I was wondering how does your academic background and or personal view play into this? Because it was really kind of interesting to me. Yeah, well, you know, looking back for me, like it's it's crazy to, to read some of this stuff because I'm like, wow, yeah, that is <laughs> that is a lot of drug use. And I think part of that is, you know, the the context of being a young person in like a fairly uh, liberal, multicultural, open market city like Toronto is like that is sort of the scene, I think, for a certain kind of age group as like deviant as that uh, seems in hindsight or out of context. But I also think it's that, you know, we're, we're used to thinking about drugs as something that's deviant or that's something that's mainly about um, addiction. But I'm really interested in how drugs can work to get at something deeper about the human condition. So I've always been fascinated with drug experience, both personally and academically. As, as a scholar, I study the history of ideas, but really what I'm interested in is drug histories and cultures. And my MA work was about the idea that a trip can be this conceptual framework 
for the process of making new knowledge. It's it's this idea that a drug can open one to thinking about the world in a different way or um, finding out something new and unexpected. And I think that idea of drugs as tools for seeing differently comes up in the book on multiple occasions. And drugs are, as we mentioned with Cliff, this unknown variable. Once they're introduced into a situation, anything can and often does happen, which is a really interesting way to work out you know, situations where you're trying not to tell someone how you feel. But more specifically, this book for me was always intended as an exploration of this tired cliche that love is a drug, which is something you hear all the time in pop songs like, you know, you can't stop thinking about the one you love, you crave their presence, they give you this euphoric rush. But what does that really mean? So love and drugs are these two forms of intense experience that for me are along a spectrum of intoxication. They're both states in which it feels like something external and irrational has taken hold of you. They both make it hard to tell the difference between pleasure and pain. It's always fascinated me that a single experience can be the source of those extremes, like euphoria on one end and potentially addiction on the other. You know, neuroscientists are always making so much of the fact that passionate love stimulates the same brain centers as addiction and it releases the same chemicals. And I wanted to explore how behavior that maybe we consider deviant or specific to drug use is actually common to a whole realm of intense human experience and raises all these questions about things like compulsion, freedom, willpower, uh, etc. Okay, that's really fascinating. I never thought of, I mean, yeah, I've never thought of it that way. Uh, the connection or the similarity in drugs and sort of emotions, that's really fascinating. Uh, I think you've opened my eyes to something I hadn't considered before, <laughs> so now I'm going to have to go back and... I'm going to have to go back and look at some parts of that book now because because I was thinking of it more like, I hate to say it, but just sort of this, you know, youthful experimentation. I don't want to say experimentation because obviously they're old enough to not be experimenting. They're they're doing it because they get something out of it. But it's really fascinating that I hadn't thought of it in the way that you're saying, but now I have to go back and think about it. So thank you for giving me another layer to <laughs> to consider. My next question, do you consider Camembo a love story? Because here's one of the things that I struggled with a little bit. I felt like on some level, all three of them, and I'm not sure that this is the right term to use, but all three of them were sort of emotionally abusive to each other, like Stacy, Cam, and Bo. Like they had these experiences where I felt like, I'm not so sure that's a healthy way to either try to have a relationship or to put somebody else off. Do you know what I'm saying? So I, I believe that it is a love story, but I wondered about that aspect of it because there were times when I felt like, yikes, this is not, these are three sort of somewhat unhealthy people in relationship with each other. Yeah, for sure. I mean, that's a, that's a totally fair and I think accurate observation. I would say, you know, for me, this is a love story, but it's a difficult one in the sense that we, we chatted a bit about the romance genre earlier. And I think, you know, we're used to stories about love that take these uh, easy, natural steps. There are twists that follow our expectations about what should and shouldn't happen in a romantic relationship. For that reason, I think romance authors will often tell you specifically what they're writing, like a high school friend's meet cute with a happily ever after, for example, that tells you exactly what that's going to be like. And we're supposed to sort of uh, enjoy that in a, in a problem-free way, but 
I think while Cam and Bo is a love story that follows and plays with some of these conventions and cliches, it also departs from them and confuses them. So it, I think it implies questions along with the lines of what you're asking, which is like, is it really romantic to have someone come over uninvited and make a big scene where they get down on their knees and ask you to take them back? Or is the idea that someone would die for you romantic? Or is that really scary? You know, like what do those conventions or uh, cliches really mean? So for me, the story was sort of verging between those two extremes. On the one hand, these romance conventions, and on the other hand, the fact that when you translate a lot of these into real terms, they're actually, yeah, they're not, they're not healthy or productive. It is real. And that's what I think when I was reading it, I felt like I've known all of these people <laughs> on some level. I've known these people. I've, I've had friends that have gone through the angst of relationships or whatever, or, you know, tr holding on to something that is not going to happen, but they continue to hold on and spend a lot of time sort of in that place where they don't see reality. So I loved it because it, one of the things, my probably my favorite kind of fiction to read, I always say, is realistic fiction. I want to read about the human condition fictionally, but that it's real, that it, that it resonates with me, that I recognize it. And Cam and Bo a, a thousand percent did that for me. I felt like these were people I know. And, and I go to Toronto, like when I say I love Toronto, like last year before the pandemic, I went five times. Oh, wow. So when I go, like I, I know, I go as often as I can. And one of the other things that I loved about it was because I recognize a lot of the places you talked about. And so that just kind of gave me a big charge for myself that because it's my favorite city. And so I could recognize where they were walking or, or whatever. So I love that. But no, I, I think you did a brilliant job on this novel. I think I really hope that you get a lot of recognition for it and that if we can help in one some small way to get this for people to recognize this and and really put it in their hands and have them read something that's just different, but is really beautiful and real, which I love. Uh, thank you, Rebecca. I, uh, it's, so, it's so nice to have American readers and, and to have that kind of reaction. So I really appreciate uh, the space you guys have given to this book. Absolutely. And I have to say, too, I had told Maria before that if we get the book from the publisher, we would put it in our collection. So we are a small rural library in Michigan, but we're going to put it out there and hope that we get some more readers in our small community. But then my last question, though, is because I am really waiting for this. When can we expect the sequel? Because at the end of the book, you mentioned Middleman. And I want to know, has it been pu it hasn't been published, but when can we expect it to be out? Honestly, it's all done and ready to go. And as soon as I can find a publisher for it, it's going to be out there. So it's in the process of being uh, submitted and considered by publishers right now. And hopefully with a debut novel like Cam and Bo out, that's a bit of a launch pad for a second book. So knock on wood. Okay, well, I'm going to be impatiently waiting, but I'm going to stay. I'll stay following you on your social media, of course, because I want to be the first one to know when it's out and about because uh, I'll be getting that book as well. So Maria, we really want to thank you for joining us today. I can't speak highly enough about this book. It was wonderful. And now that you've added some layers for me to go back and think about, which is my favorite thing to do, I know that I think we're going to be able to convince a lot of people to read this book. It's, it's fabulous. Thank you. Awesome. Thank you so much.
Thanks for listening. If you would like us to continue to provide great content like this, subscribe and tell all your friends about Canada Reads American Style. Bye!